Good morning. Uh, my name is Freke from Amherst College. We'll be reading from Romans 7, from verse 7 to 25. Romans 7, 7 to 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seeking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment that the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself dwell, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. 
dear Heavenly Father, while worldly powers reel from crisis to crisis, you remain supreme. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your love for us, the sacrifice of your son Jesus while we were still sinners, is what draws us to your presence this morning and is what enables us to love the world as your creation. This morning we confess that we have taken your love for granted. In fact, we have loved wrongly, elevating what is contemptible and debasing what is precious. By our actions and in our thoughts, we have sinned against you. Have mercy on us, Lord, and forgive us. Thanks be to God because you have done so and even much more. Renew our right relationship with you and draw us closer to yourself, reminding us of your beauty and of your holiness. We pray for Pastor Robert as he delivers the sermon. May the word we hear be your words, Lord, and not his. For we acknowledge that our lives are not changed by the embellishments of human intellect, but by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. So that those areas of our lives that we are unable to change through our efforts, your word might penetrate to our innermost being and affect us. Finally, I would like to pray for our students who have departed from here and gone to other places, that as they travel, they will travel safely, and as they move to new areas, they'll be able to join seamless um, Christian communities, and in those welcoming communities, they'll be able to live their lives as Christians much more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rest of the day, and glory be to your name. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Freka. Well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you. And uh, I don't know if you noticed as you walked in, the grass in the front yard is like about that tall. Um, and this partly because uh, the person that was mowing, his schedule's changed, and he let us know. He said, I can't do it. So reach out to Lois and say, hey, I would love to mow the grass at church. And she would be happy uh, to show you where the mower is because it needs to get mowed. So, all right. All right, so let's look at Romans. Uh, hopefully you've opened it up in, in uh, your Bible, on your Bible app. Um, really, I think you want to look along uh, with me, uh, because this passage is a, a really complicated passage, but it, it's a wonderful, wonderful passage. So we've been saying that Romans chapter 6, 7, 8 really gives you the basics of Christian living, and chapter 6 uh, is really mostly about your identity, who you are so that you can be who you are. And who you are, according to Romans chapter 6, is you are, through faith, you have been united with Jesus and in that union, you've died to sin, and you've been raised to live a new life. You are now what Paul calls under grace. And so it is a completely new operating system that Paul really spends a lot of time explaining and illustrating. We spent the last 
you know, three, yeah, three sermons on this new operating system of being under grace. If you haven't uh, listened to those sermons yet, I would, I would encourage you to go back because this, that's really the foundation that's being laid there of understanding our identity in Christ. And if you, if you just read Romans 6 and maybe the first six verses of Romans 7, you would probably start to think that your life should be absolutely sin-free. And so you read like phrases in Romans 6 where he opens up and he says, what, uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse, Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Or 17, be thank, but, uh, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And in verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Imagine you're going to the Apostle Paul of Romans 6 for some counseling about a sin issue in your life that you're struggling with. And so you come to Pastor Paul and you say, you know, I've got this issue in my life, I've been struggling, and the Romans 6, Pastor Paul says, don't you know you died to sin? Uh, He says, why aren't you considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God? Or he might say, don't you know that now you're a slave to God? And bearing fruit for God? Have a nice day. <laughs> right? That would, that would be sort of Romans 6, Pastor Paul. But we read those verses, and you've listened to these sermons over the last three weeks, and I think the, the, the question that kind of bubbles up is, well, what about that everyday struggle that we experience with sin? Is Paul some kind of super-Christian? who doesn't ever struggle with sin, like me? The, answer, the short answer is no. He, he is not a super Christian. In fact, he is very aware of the presence of sin in his life. I would say he's more aware of sin in his life than any of us in this room. Now, as I said before, he wanted to drill down into your Christian identity in Romans 6. He wants to get that in place before he talks about struggles with sin. Romans 6, as I said a couple of weeks ago, is sort of like the, the coaching speech in the locker room. You know, you're a wildcat, and, and wildcats hit hard, wildcats run hard, wildcats never give up. And you hear the rousing speech from the coach, and you're in the air-conditioned locker room. You've got some pump-up music going on. You've got freshly laundered uniform on. That's what Romans 6 is like in the locker room, in the air-conditioning. And, you know, Coach Paul is saying, come on, Christian, don't you know you're dead to sin and alive to Christ? Yes! Yes! then go bear some fruit for God. 
in your sanctification. Yes! <laughs> That's Romans 6. And then the game starts. And it's 100 degrees on the field. There, there, there's uh, an opponent. <laughs> that opponent is staring you down and ready to hit you. I don't know how many times I experienced this when I was in high school playing football. Texas football is a big deal, okay? And we would be so pumped up in the locker room. We'd hear the rousing speech, the pump-up music. I mean, the whole town was at the, the, the game. We're, we're having to have police officers help us get through the crowd to get to the football field. And then, you know, everyone's uniform is, is freshly laundered. The shoes are shined. The coaches are in their best, you know, coaching outfit. I mean, it is heady stuff, and you stand out there on the field, and you play the national anthem, and everyone's cheering, and then you got to get on the field. And I, I played quarterback my senior year, and every game was like this, where the first down, I would get under center, and I would look over into the defense, and I was looking eye to eye at the best athlete on the field, and it wasn't me. It was what's known as a middle linebacker. And that middle linebacker had been in their own locker room, had had his own pump-up speech, had had his own music to come out on. And his eyes were wide, and he had one goal, and that was to kill me. <laughs> and I was usually that first down, just shaking, like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? You know? And then once you get into it, you're, you're okay. After he like, knocks you down and you're like, oh, I'm still alive. It's okay. Um, but this is similar to going from Romans 6 to Romans 7. Right? You're all pumped up from Romans 6, and then you get on the field, and you're like, I've got an opponent. <laughs> and so this, this, is, this is like the, the, the first of the three points. And then the second would be the nature of the battle. And thirdly, the path to victory. So we'll talk about the opponent, we'll talk about the nature of the battle, we'll talk about the path to victory. What got, gets Paul talking about the opposition is talking about the law, because he wants to make sure he communicates to his hearers that the law is good, even though the law is pointing out our sin. And so he says in Romans 7, verse 7, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So he wants us to know the law is not bad. The law comes from God. The law actually reveals the created design of human beings. It's not some random rules that God came up with to torture us with. It actually reveals the, the order that God had in mind for human life. But Paul has been very clear that while the law comes from God and it points to the order that, that God intended, the law cannot save us from our sin. It can only point out our sin. And this is what, what Paul majors on. It's not the only purpose of the law, but it is the thing he majors on in the book of Romans is that the law points out sin. Remember Romans 3.20, for by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
law is painted as an interventionist that comes into the sinner's life to, to, to point out that they are bent towards sin. And we need this interventionist because we tend toward unrighteousness, ungodliness, and then blame-shifting to justify ourselves before God and others. And the law has to come in and say, no, it's you. You are a sinner. You are sinful. He uses the example of covetousness. Covetousness, thou shalt not covet, is the 10th commandment. And uh, it, it is a sinful desire to acquire something that someone else has that you don't. It's a sinful desire, an internal desire to acquire something that someone else has that you don't. Exodus 20, verse 17 says this way, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So, my neighbor has something I don't have, and I want it. It doesn't say that I'm stealing it. There's another commandment for that. It's, again, talking about the inner discontent with what we don't have and the feeling of entitlement for something that someone else has. And it's the only commandment, at least on the surface, that deals with inner desire. All the other ones on the surface seem external. This one is internal. I mean, how could you ever police the 10th commandment? It can certainly be the root of adultery or the root of stealing, but by the time you commit adultery or you steal your neighbor's ox, you've already broken another commandment. So what do you need this this 10th commandment for? It can't be policed. But it is letting the Old Testament believer know that God doesn't just want them to obey externally. He wants them to obey internally. Now, Paul goes on to say that this 10th commandment didn't just point out his sin, it made his sin worse. This is very interesting. Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul reveals that not only did the the Tenth Commandment reveal his sin of covetousness, but it provoked him to be even more involved in the sin of coveting. Not every res- everyone responds to rules like this. I think some people are genuine rule followers, but for some of us, the rules provoke disobedience. A couple of extreme exa- examples. Uh, when a child is hitting their sibling, and you say, please don't hit your sibling, and in anger, they hit their sibling more, They might even turn and start hitting their parent, right? This is something along the lines of what Paul's describing here. It's not just revealing your sin. It's provoking you to sin even more. Or the adult version sometimes looks like this, where people who grew up in 
uh, religious homes that were majoring on rule-following in adult life, rejecting that religious upbringing, but not only rejecting it, publicly mocking the rules and flaunting their freedom from the rules, creating whole Instagram accounts on the fact that they now mock and flaunt these rules. And Paul is sharing this kind of inclination about himself. It's a very personal passage. Not only did the Tenth Commandment point out sin, it provoked sin in him. Notice how he personifies sin. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. I mean, it sounds like sin is taking on a mind and a body and is deceptively attacking Paul and seeking to kill him. Sin is a 200-pound linebacker that's looking at you across the field wanting to kill you. This is your opponent. This is your opponent. Paul is revealing that sin is the opponent and that sin is an ongoing reality in every human's life, including Christians. Including Christians, including the Apostle Paul, who is not a super Christian. He too has sin in his life. And in fact, that influence of sin is prominent. It is prominent. It is, it is not just a, a little thing on the side that ah, sometimes it crops up. He's describing this as a major opponent that the Christian has to face day in and day out. Now, again, the identity that is in Romans 6, that is still true, okay? And this is partly why he wanted to, to drill down in that identity back in 6, because then he's going to take you out on the field and he's going to show you that linebacker. You say, that is a serious opponent, but you are a wildcat, okay? You, you have the identity that you need, but you need to understand the context in which you live that identity out. This is not the air-conditioned locker room. This is the field with a real opponent. Now, what's the, the nature of this fight with this opponent? I mean, one, we already know it's, it, the enemy is within. It is sin that's dwelling in us. That's the opponent that we have to get up every day and square off with. And again, it's not your primary identity, but it, it is prominent in the experience of the Christian. In fact, sin is, is, is such a, an opponent that it can even take God's law and twist it into something that's provoking us to sin. Talk about an opponent taking the very holy and good law of God. But again, it's, it's not the law's fault, right? It's the sin living in us. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what, what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And so he's letting us know that this opposition, it, it's, it's within us. We have sin remaining in us, even if we are a Christian. And the law is pointing that out. And that's good. 
We need it to be pointed out because we can easily be deceived in thinking that it's not there at all. But He even lets us know that sin will even take the law and twist it as a way to provoke even more sin. You can think of law like a doctor. Let's say the doctor comes in and says, you have a broken arm and shows you the x-ray. And you say, I don't believe it. And the doctor walks over to your arm and presses on it. And, ah, I believe it. Sin, the law is doing something similar. It's showing you the x-ray saying, you're a sinner. And you're like, oh, no, I'm not, I, it's not, I'm not that bad. And then he walks over and provokes you to sin even more. And you're like, ah, okay, okay. I'm a sinner. I have sin within that I have to fight every day. He continues to, to, to describe the nature of the fight. He says in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So not only do I have the opponent dwelling in me, I'm powerless over the opponent. This is what he's describing here. I know what's right. I'm powerless to do it. I'm powerless to stop doing the things that I know that I shouldn't be doing. And the whole time I'm agreeing in my mind that the law is good, that God's ways are right. This is partly how we know this passage is is talking about a converted Paul. This is a Christian Paul. This is not a pre-Christian Paul. This is a a Christian Paul because he's delighting in God, delighting in God's law. And so he's saying, in my thinking, I'm getting this right in terms of the law, but in my feeling as in my desire, my coveting, and in my actions. I'm not getting it right. And no matter how hard I try, I, I can't get it right. I'm powerless over this indwelling opponent. And in 19 and 20, he gives kind of a summary of these concepts. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So you you see him talking about the nature of the fight. The opponent is dwelling within me, and I have no power over the opponent. This is a sobering passage. Now notice he's not saying that that sin is damning you to hell. Again, he's talking to Christians here in chapter 7. And so he has made an argument from Romans 1 to Romans 5 that those who trust in Christ, in, in what He's done for them on the cross to forgive them of their sins, have been made right with God, and they will be with, e- with God for eternity. So he, that's, that's not what He's talking about in Romans 7. In Romans 7, He's talking about a saved person, a, a converted Christian in their ongoing fight with the opposition of indwelling sin. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. Now you're having to use the power God's given you to overcome the opponent that dwells within you. Every Christian, including the Apostle Paul, is at war with sin in themselves. You see this in verse 21. He says, I I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, 
evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So here he, he describes it as war. There's a war going on between me and the sin that dwells within me. Is it your primary identity? No. Your primary identity is one who's united with Christ. You've died to sin. You're alive to God. That was, was drilled down in Romans 6. But, but now you're on the field having to live the identity out in the field conditions as they are with the sun in your eyes, 100 degrees, and an opponent staring you in the face. And he wants, he wants to sober us up of the reality of this indwelling sin and how it affects us. You, you see him talking about the law of sin dwelling in my members. Remember his talk about members back in Romans 6, 6.13? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. We said back then that, that this presenting your members is, is your body parts. It's a way to talk about your whole person to be presented to God in obedience, in righteousness. And so he is saying, yes, you, you Christian, you are presenting your whole person in obedience to God, but your whole person has been infected with sin. Sin dwells within your members. You're affected by sin, body and soul. Your mind, your will, your emotions, all of those things are affected by sin. Even if I'm agreeing in my mind what's wrong and what's right, I, I still have to fight this opponent of indwelling sin. In verse 23, he even says he feels like a captive. It's making me a captive. Now, I, it should be somewhat of an encouragement, Okay. Because if you have walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you know there are times when sin seems overwhelming. It seems like the opponent has got you and that you don't have power over that opponent. And Paul's saying, he's been there. He's been in that place where the opponent of sin seems to be winning. There have been times when we, we think, my mind has agreed with God in His truth, but I, I can't control my thoughts. I continue to, to think things that I know are not in line with God's truth. I continue to feel things that are not in line with God's truth. I continue to do things that are not in line with God's truth. And again, go back to the example of covetousness. Try to control your covetousness. Your desire to want something that others have that you don't. Try to control your, your desire to be entitled to those things. Try, try to control your emotions of, of anger or frustration that you don't have the life that someone else has. It's an impossible task in our own strength. And I think this is partly why Paul uses that particular commandment to talk about it. So that's the opposition, that's the nature of the fight, now the path to victory. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
Notice that the path to victory is not a try harder in your own strength. Hear the desperation from Paul. Wretched man I am, rescue me! That's, what, that, that's where he gets at the end of this long description of the opponent and the nature of the war that wages within his soul. Help me! He sees himself, both his identity in Romans 6, but also the reality of the opponent within. And what he doesn't cry out for is, I need some better rules, help me! He, he, do, he doesn't say, I need some more accountability, help me! He, he, he doesn't say, I need some more community support and comfort! Not that those things are bad, right? But what he says is, help me, Lord Jesus Christ! That's who gives the rescue. Jesus means Savior. Christ means King. Lord means God. That's who he's crying out to, to be saved. This wretched man that I am. The divine Son of God has died in His place to pay for His sin and to give Him power over the sin that dwells within Him. Again, He's, he's not talking to non-Christians in this Romans 7. He's talking to a Christian who has the opponent in them and they have the power to fight. If you're not a Christian, you don't even have the power to fight. Romans 7 is just, it's just hopelessness. <laughs> But when he, we get to this point where he says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? There's a great amount of hope. Sins that are many, his mercy is more. We just sang it. That's such a great line. Because it acknowledges the, tr- the truth about the opponent, but that we can be saved both from the penalty and the power of the opponent, sin. As Christians, this sin is not damning us. We've, by grace through faith, we've ju- been justified. We are right with God. We are right with God now. We'll be right with God forever. So that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the daily fight with sin that still dwells within us. And the place we get help with that sin that dwells in us is the same place we got help when we cried out for justification, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we became a Christian... Those of you that are Christians, you came to that place where you said, wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Jesus. And when you realize that and you receive that rescue from him, you were made right with God once for all. And now he's saying, do the same thing (laughs) in your sanctification, in your ongoing struggle with sin. Do the same thing you did back there. Not to get yourself saved from hell, but to get power over sin day in, day out, day in, day out. Rescue me, Jesus, from this sin that dwells within me. So ways to respond to this. If I'm not yet a Christian and I I hear this, I think what we need to, to, to be thinking is that not only are you under the power of sin, but if you're not yet a Christian, you're under the penalty of sin. This opponent, sin, if, you, if you've not received Christ through faith, that, that opponent will take you straight to hell. Not only will it have power over you now, but it will have power over you for eternity. 
And so I want to encourage you, if that's where you are this morning, to reach out to God in faith, asking Him to forgive you of your sin and to bring you into right relationship with Him. He is eager to do that. And then in His power, you will be able to to have power over sin in the day in and the day out. Because you will be one who is saved and is being saved in your sanctification. So cry out for saving this morning. If you're not there yet, you're not ready to cry out for saving, I want to encourage you to begin to explore the Christian faith. Even to go on our website, mercyhouse365.org slash respond, and you'll see a, like a more thorough explanation of the gospel, what Christ has done for us to save us. But what if we're already a Christian? Right? This passage really is primarily to those who are Christians. Be encouraged in your struggle against sin. If Paul <laughs> experiences the struggle against sin, then this must be fairly typical experience, right? So be encouraged when you find yourself inclined to think or feel or do things that are not in accordance with God's Word. When your thoughts are consumed with yourself or, or you're, you feel depressed, angry, bitter, uh, you struggle to spin out of those feelings and thoughts, or you, 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 you've told yourself, I'm never going to do that again, <laughs> and then you do it again. Or you tell yourself, I'm going to start doing this thing, and then you don't start to do it. Right? We've, we've all been there. We all are there in different ways, thinking, feeling, doing in ways that are not consistent with God's Word. And according to Romans 7, this war... That's what Paul calls it, against the sin that lives within us, is typical. That there is a linebacker looking across the field at us and wants to kill us. And this serious opposition, in our own strength, we are powerless to overcome. But in the power of Christ, it has met its match. For those who have been united with Christ in faith, dead to sin, alive to God, can now say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And that's not just some empty pump-up speech. That's who you are, wildcat. So be encouraged. Be encouraged in your ongoing struggle against sin. Really, ongoing sanctification should look something like this little chart here. Oh, I forget. <laughs> do, we have, do, do we have a little, a little schematic? Yeah, there we go. Where you become a Christian when you place faith in Christ. This is your justification. It happens in a moment in time. But then you enter into a process of sanctification throughout all your life as a Christian. And what happens is you become more and more aware of your sin as the Holy Spirit is, is pointing out issues in your life, things in your life through, through the Word, but you're also growing more and more aware of the rescue that God has given you at the cross. This is what we see in, the, in, in Apostle Paul. He's more and more aware of the sin that lives within him the more mature he is as a Christian. But he's more and more aware of what has been given to him at the cross, both in his justification but also in his ongoing sanctification. Be encouraged, be encouraged. 
Number two to the Christian is to be convicted if you're not struggling with sin. You're in a war. You're in a war. And if, if you're like, I don't even know what he's talking about. I, what's this war with sin? You need to be convicted of sin in your life. What's most likely happening is, is sort of like constantly giving in to a spoiled child. When you constantly give in to the spoiled child, there, there's never any war. The kid's like, can I have ice cream for breakfast? Sure. No war. The kid's like, can I watch TV all day? Sure. Watch TV all day. No war. No conflict in the home. We sometimes treat indwelling sin in this way. Indwelling sin desires to scroll on Instagram for hours instead of reading the Bible and praying. Go ahead, scroll away. There's no war. Desire to spend your money only on yourself and not leverage any of it for gospel mission? Sure, spend it all on yourself. There's no war, there's no conflict. Desire to spend all your time either working and making money or having experiences of recreation and never serving your neighbors or serving in the church? Yeah, go ahead. Just spend all your time on your work and your recreation. There's no war. But what, does, what, what results from this kind of giving in to the, the sin that lives within us are things like apathy, boredom, doubt, Guilt, shame, enslavement, greater and greater isolation from God and others. This giving in to the sin that lives within us, it it doesn't lead to life. It leads to death. It has a stranglehold on you, and it is slowly killing you. But if you repent... You repent from Instagram scrolling and selfish spending and squandering of your time. You can guarantee the sin that lives within you is going to rear its ugly head. The the, the moment that you start to say, you know what, no to you phone, I'm going to say yes to this Bible, the sin within is going to go, no! Like a spoiled brat. And you're going to have to cry out to God, wretched man that I am, save me! Help me, Jesus. I just want to scroll on my phone all day. I don't want to read your word. Help me. Right? Or, or, or you rework your budget so you're going to be a lot more generous to gospel mission. And then that first month comes up where you're going to actually do the generous giving, the sin that dwells within you. No! And you're going to have to cry out, wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, save me. From this body of death. Or are you going to reschedule your time so you can kind of come out of COVID isolation and start interacting more with your neighbors and serving in your church and building those friendships that have been on hold for so long? And then when you start to roll out that first week on the new schedule, no! Stay home, binge on Netflix, right? And you're going to have to cry out, wretched woman that I am, wretched man that I am, save me. From this body of death. Not save me from hell. You're, you are, if you're a Christian, you're saved. You're justified. But you need this ongoing saving from the presence of sin in your life. And so 
when, when you're no longer giving in to the, to the spoiled child of the indwelling sin, you better believe there's going to be a war that's going to go on. And you're going to have to cry out to God for help. Welcome back to the battle. Because the result is not apathy. <laughs> it, it, it's not guilt. It's not, it's not shame. It's not isolation from God and others. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. It's a lot easier to just stay back in the locker room with a pump-up speech. It's not easy on the field, staring across the field at that linebacker looking at you. But when you cry out to Christ for help, life comes back into your soul. And you're in the battle again. Number three for the Christian is to set your mind on the Savior more than you set your mind on on the sin. Paul is painting this vivid picture of sin and its influence in the Christian's life in order to contrast it with the beauty and the glory of the salvation that you have. He, he's not painting this vivid picture of sin so that you can just wallow in that and in the realities of, of the opponent that you find yourself up against every day. The end goal is to look at Christ, to behold Christ because you're more aware of your own wretchedness in regard to the indwelling sin. The backdrop of sin shows us the glory of the Savior. The backdrop of hunger makes food taste all that much better. The backdrop of loneliness makes times of friendship all that much sweeter. The backdrop of darkness makes the flipping on of that light all the more powerful. The backdrop of wretchedness of sin makes the Lord Jesus Christ be so much more glorious. We see Him for who He is when we look at Him at the backdrop of sin. And then fourthly, that this week's passage would push us into Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 really is, is, is going to teach us, okay, here's how you play the game on the field. Romans 6, like, this is who you are, wildcat. Romans 7, this is your opponent in the nature of the battle. And he's just starting to point us to this path of victory. And Romans 8 is just going to keep on keeping on in the path of victory. So spend some time reading Romans 8, meditating on Romans 8. We're going to spend a couple of sermons on Romans 8, and we preached 10 sermons on Romans 8 a few years ago. We'll post those, but Romans 8 is just such a significant passage in helping the Christian understand, here's how you do the daily battle with the sin that lives within us. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for this very sobering passage. And we pray, God, that you would help us to see it for what it is, not as an overwhelming opponent that will crush us, but a, so, a sobering of that power that sin does have that dwells within us. But even more so, the, the rescue that we've been given by Christ at the cross, that rescue from the penalty of sin once for all that we would be reconcile with you forever, now and in eternity, but also the 
the, the, the power we've been given in our new identity as ones who are dead to sin and alive to Christ and can walk out on the field of battle and have victory in that battle day in and day out, God. And that that victory, that, that sanctification would be for your glory and for our good and the good of our church and the good of our world, the mission that we're on. God, please work in us to have victory over sin in our lives, to have victory over sin in our church community, to see victory over sin in the hearts and lives of those you put in our path, Lord. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.